Today on Golden Girls Sports, we tip off with the starting five of Magic, Kareem, Uncle Angelo, Little Sven, and a dwarf. Marcus Allen. Mike Tyson. Extra innings. The tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson. Bobby Old. Tampa Bay Bucks. And they're off! The pig takes the lead. The chicken. We'll start with two episodes that have two things in common Bill Dana and basketball. My Brother, My Father premiered on February 6, 1988, the 17th episode of the show's third season. It was written by Barry Finaro and Mort Nathan and directed by Terry Hughes. The episode starts with Blanche and Rose getting parts in a community theater production of The Sound of Music, but being disappointed in their small roles. Oh, I can't believe that you weren't cast in the lead role. You've gotten it the past five years in a row. Well, they hired a new director this year and he has no taste. Blanche used to sleep with the old one. <laughs> the new director's gay. A gay theater director. Did you ever hear such a thing? It's absolutely shocking. Next thing you know, they'll have black basketball players in the NBA. But the real story is about Sophia's brother Angelo coming to visit all the way from Sicily. He's a priest, and well, Sophia never told him that Dorothy and Stan are divorced. So she wants them to pretend to be married as long as he's here. You're better off just watching the episode to see all of the classic hijinks that they go through, exacerbated by the presence of a hurricane that not only prolongs Angelo's visit, but forces Blanche and Rose to keep pretending to be nuns for the duration. Anyway, in the end, Dorothy comes clean to her uncle, and he shocks everyone by coming clean himself. He's not a priest, and he never has been, choosing to secretly marry the love of his life just before entering the seminary. But he didn't want to break his mother's heart, so he lied. But don't worry, he thinks Stan's a yutz too. Uncle Angelo would return for five more Golden Girls episodes, but not again until three seasons later. In Love for Sale, a season six episode written by Don Siegel and Jerry Prezigian and directed by Peter D. Bate, Stan and Dorothy inherit an apartment building when Stan's uncle dies. Needless to say, Dorothy isn't interested in becoming a landlord. But when her uncle Angelo moves to Miami, he's really down in the dumps thanks to a romance gone sour. I met a beautiful young Sicilian aerobics instructor, gorgeous eyes, angelic mouth, and a behind that must have been made on a Saturday because even the good Lord himself would want to take a day off to admire it. <laughs> I lost my heart, and I opened my wallet, eh? Oh, the, the expensive gifts and the fancy dinners and the weekends in Mykonos, eh? I even wore one of those uh, tiny Speedo swimmer suits. <laughs> Shows all of your gingerbread and everything, you know? <laughs> And she leaves me. What is a six-foot, seven-inch American basketball player got that I don't? Well, Angelo, speaking in terms of the gingerbread alone... <laughs> Broke and in need of a hand, Uncle Angelo moves into one of the open apartments in the building. The rest of the episode is about Stan winning Dorothy in a bachelorette auction because he believes they should still be together. We won't worry about that right now. But in season 7, they'll both be taken to court for being slumlords thanks in part to complaints from Uncle Angelo. It's complicated. 
The eccentric Uncle Angelo was played by Bill Dana, an actor, performer, writer, activist, and teacher who had a very diverse career spanning decades, mainly thanks to a character he would eventually abandon. Dana was born William Zathmary in Quincy, Massachusetts to a Hungarian Jewish family. He did a stint in the army and then attended Emerson College to study drama. While working as a page at NBC, he also performed as part of a comedy duo in clubs and on variety shows. That led to getting jobs as a joke writer for Don Adams and Steve Allen. Adams' signature bit, Would You Believe?, was actually written by Dana, and the two would work together in a few places. It was on The Steve Allen Show in 1959 that Dana debuted and created his most famous character. Jose Jimenez was an immigrant of indeterminate origin whose broken English and spot-on timing would elicit howls of laughter whenever he would appear, and no matter what job he had at the time. He could be, in no particular order, a baseball player, a department store Santa Claus, an Olympic skier, a politician, a cattle rancher, a deep-sea diver, and a wild animal trainer. Dana would appear as Jose on shows hosted by Ed Sullivan, Milton Berle, Jackie Gleason, Andy Williams, and a lot of others. Jose even popped out of a window on Batman and performed at John F. Kennedy's presidential inauguration. His most famous job was as an astronaut, where his bit was so funny that the character was adopted by the astronauts of the Mercury space program and made their official mascot. He was name-checked during Alan Shepard's liftoff in 1961, when fellow astronaut Deke Slayton said to him, quote, Okay, Jose, you're on your way. Your name, sir? My name, Jose Jimenez. I see you brought along some of your equipment with you. What is that called? A crash helmet? Oh, I hope not. Now <laughs> uh, tell me, Jose. Yes. What is the most important thing in space travel? To me, the most important thing in space travel is the blast off. The blast off? I always take a blast before I take off. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't get near that bitch looking at thing. Jose, do you think we'll, we'll get to the moon before Russia? No, I think we'll get to Russia first because it's a lot closer. Jose became a recurring character on Danny Thomas's Make Room for Daddy in 1961, and eventually he landed a show of his own. The Bill Dana Show premiered in 1963 on NBC and featured Jose as the goofball bellhop in a swanky hotel. The sitcom ran for two seasons and also featured a pre-Get Smart Don Adams as the hotel's detective. After performing as Jose for over a decade, Dana retired the character in the early 70s. Although he never saw Jose as a racist caricature, a lot of other people unfortunately did. Dana said he grew tired of hearing people say, quote, boy, I sure love it when you play that dumb Mexican, end quote, when the idea was that he was supposed to represent hardworking immigrants across America. But stepping away from Jose Jimenez didn't stop him from working. He was also a sitcom writer, penning episodes of All in the Family and Chico and the Man, and acting in shows like Policewoman, Macmillan and Wife, Vegas, Fantasy Island, and Zorro and Son. When he stepped onto the set of The Golden Girls, Dana was greeted by producer Tony Thomas, whom he knew as a kid while he was working with his dad, Danny. Doing an Italian accent wasn't a problem for a guy who grew up around Italians and who had worked extensively in an accent for years. As to why Angelo even had an accent, Dana said they just went with it. Quote, I don't remember ever having a discussion with the producers about why Sophia spoke with a Brooklyn accent, and yet her brother talked like this. It was never a consideration. We just did what we thought was funny. End quote. Dana always considered himself a writer first and foremost, but he learned quickly that the Golden Girls already had a great writing staff, and they really weren't looking for suggestions. Quote, 
But there usually wasn't much of a need to change anything because those Golden Girls scripts were some of the best written I've ever seen, practically ready to go on camera from the moment we read them. There was a unique discipline to the way the Golden Girls seemed to be written. And although I've never worked in legit theater, I know it's the way things work on Broadway. As an actor, you can't change an a uh to an n or add a comma without the writer's permission. It usually doesn't work that way on TV, but it did here. And that was a testament to how those people knew what the hell they were doing. End quote. Dana appeared as Uncle Angelo in five episodes, and as Papa Angelo, Sophia and Angelo's father, in the season four episode Valentine's Day. His last TV credit was on a 1994 episode of Golden Girls spinoff Empty Nest called The Ballad of Shady Pines. In a disturbing inception that needs to be seen to be believed, Dana played the slimy, smoking jacket-wearing boyfriend of one Sophia Petrillo, who had moved back into her former old age home. Yep, after playing brother and sister for three years, Estelle Getty and Bill Dana were suddenly paramours. It is weird. Weirder still was that also playing a part in that episode was Sid Melton, who played Salvador Petrillo throughout the Golden Girls run. The Ballad of Shady Pines is on YouTube, and you can watch it, but be warned, it feels all kinds of wrong. In addition to writing and performing jokes, Dana also wrote a book on the healing power of comedy, owned an advertising company, and managed talent like Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. He also helped start the American Comedy Archives at Emerson College, where he conducted interviews with comedians and writers on videotape for historical posterity. In June of 2017, Bill Dana passed away at the age of 92 in his home in Nashville. Jose Jimenez might be problematic and dated, but Bill Dana's place in TV comedy cannot be denied. The NBA's color barrier was broken in 1950 by three players. Chuck Cooper was the first black player to be drafted into the league when he was selected in the second round by the Boston Celtics. The New York Knicks made Nat Sweetwater Clifton the first black player to sign a contract. But Earl Lloyd, a forward out of West Virginia State University, who was selected in the ninth round of the same draft Cooper was taken in, was the first African-American to play in an NBA game, suiting up for the Washington Capitals in a game against the Rochester Royals on October 31st, 1950. You never heard of the Capitals? Don't worry. The team folded in January of that season, and Earl Lloyd joined the Army and served over in Korea. He returned to the NBA in 1953 and played the next six seasons with the Syracuse Nationals, winning a title with them in 1955. He was nearly hired as the head coach of the Detroit Pistons in 1965, which would have made him the first African-American coach in NBA history, too. They decided to name Dave DeBuscher player coach, and a few years later, the great Bill Russell became the league's first black coach when he took over for Red Auerbach in Boston as a player coach himself. For all they endured, just for the right to play the sports they were good in, the names of pioneers like Earl Lloyd, Chuck Cooper, and Nat Clifton should be better known by casual sports fans. As of 2015, about 75% of NBA players are black, with the other 25% comprised of either white, Latino, or Asian players. It's also inarguably the most popular sports league in the country right now. The average height of all NBA players today is in fact 6'7", same as it was in 1991 when Love for Sale first aired. I don't know if the Golden Girls writers knew that, but it's a cool bit of trivia. But let's talk about a 6'9 NBA player. Irvin Johnson Jr., better known as Magic, was one of the best basketball players of all time and an icon of 80s sports. His name popped up on a Golden Girls episode we talked about last episode, 
Season 2's The Stan Who Came to Dinner. But magic was referenced in a few other episodes as well, like Season 3's A Visit from Little Sven, written by David Nichols. As Rose's big dopey cousin visits from St. Olaf and mistakenly thinks he and Blanche have a future together, Sophia is upset that she's the only one down at the center who doesn't have a valid driver's license. And Dorothy thinks it should stay that way. I want to learn again. Oh, come on. Ma, you're 81 years old. Your eyesight is weaker. Your reflexes are slower. And who are you, Magic Johnson? (laughs) A Visit from Little Sven was the only Golden Girl script for David Nichols, who would go on to be a writer and producer for sitcoms like Evening Shade, Hearts of Fire, and Grace Under Fire throughout the 90s. The titular Little Sven was played by the decidedly non-little Casey Sander, who's had an incredibly long career mainly as a guest star on TV shows and movies. Early roles include parts on The Fall Guy, Knight Rider, Airwolf, The Master, and The Scarecrow Mrs. King. He also had small parts in movies Stewardess School, Dragnet, and Punchline. But it wasn't until Grace Under Fire when he had a recurring role, starring as Wawa Swoboda in 112 episodes. He also played Rock Lanigan on 10 episodes of Home Improvement. These days, you can catch him as Chief Connors on the Mystery Woman series of TV movies, or as Bernadette's father, Mike Rostenkowski, on The Big Bang Theory. Then in season four's Scared Straight, a Christopher Lloyd-written episode we talked about in episode 18 of this podcast, Sophia thinks her late husband Salvador is coming to take her to the afterlife and decides to bequeath Dorothy some earthly possessions in the loving way only she can. Put your hands, Dorothy. What for? So I can say hello like Magic Johnson. <laughs> so I'm going to give you some of my personal things. My bank book, some stocks. Oh, Ma, come on. Now, this is crazy. Magic sure did his share of high-fiving during the 80s. As a major part of the run-and-gun Showtime Lakers, he won five NBA championships, was named to finals MVP three times, won league MVP three times, and played in 12 All-Star games. After winning an NCAA championship with Michigan State, he was drafted first overall by Los Angeles in 1979 thanks to a trade they had made two years earlier with the New Orleans Jazz. In his rookie year, Magic helped the Lakers win the title over the 76ers and became the first rookie to win finals MVP in the process. In Game 6 of that series, Magic had to play center, a position he hadn't played at any point during the season and finished with 42 points, 15 rebounds, and 7 assists. By the time Scared Straight aired, he and the Lakers had won four more championships and were, to put it mildly, never boring on or off the court. In 1991, Magic made the shocking announcement that he was HIV positive. He immediately retired at the age of 32, but thanks to support from fans, and despite the protestations of a few other NBA players who feared coming into contact with his blood, he was voted into the 1992 All-Star Game. He scored 25 points and scored the game-winning three-pointer for the Western Conference, winning the game's MVP award. He was also a member of the first-ever NBA player-stocked dream team to play at the Olympics, but he played sparingly as Team USA romped its way to a gold medal in Barcelona. In 1992, the Lakers retired his number 32, and he was named coach of the team a year later, but he came back as a player in 1995 at the age of 36. He played in 32 games for the Lakers that season, mostly coming off the bench, but called it quits for good after that. In 2002, he was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. Magic's post-playing career has been extremely varied. He hosted a TV talk show called The Magic Hour for two months in 1998, has done commentary for NBA games, and owned a piece of the Lakers before selling his shares in 2010. 
In 2012, he led a group that purchased the Los Angeles Dodgers for $2 billion, but has since cashed out of that, too. He's currently the Lakers' president of basketball operations, but he'll probably end up doing something else before long. One of Magic Johnson's Lakers teammates came up on the Golden Girls before he did. In season two's Forgive Me Father, written by Kathy Spear and Terry Grossman, Sophia cannot go to bingo without a very important accessory. Who cares, Rose? I got my own problems. <laughs> Your own problems? I can't find my lucky handkerchief. Lucky handkerchief? What the hell are you, a minor bird? <laughs> I'm trying to get my kit together for a major bingo game, and it's not here. There's no way I can play without it. It's like Kareem without his goggles. The episode's A story is about Dorothy meeting a man and asking him out, only to find out that, yep, he's a priest. A real one, not like an Uncle Angelo. But he wasn't born into the seminary. Oh, so first you were a teacher, and then you decided to become a priest. Well, actually, first I went to medical school for a year. Then I quit and became an assistant basketball coach. Then I became a teacher. Then came the priesthood. What do you think you'll do next? <laughs> In the end, Frank and Dorothy just weren't meant to be, and he goes back to being a teaching priest. And she goes back to being poor, dateless Dorothy. Father Frank was played by actor John McMartin, a five-time Tony nominee who's had big parts in shows like Sweet Charity, Showboat, Into the Woods, and the 2011 revival of Anything Goes. Born in Indiana and raised in Minnesota, McMartin also had a long TV career, starting on As the World Turns from 1961 to 1963, then appearing in shows like Marcus Welby, M.D., The Partridge Family, and Phyllis. Throughout the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, he specialized in primetime dramas like Falcon Crest, Beauty and the Beast, Law and & Order, and even Oz. He reprised his role of Oscar in the 1969 film version of Sweet Charity and was also in the feature films Blowout, All the President's Men, and Who's That Girl? John McMartin passed away in 2016 at the age of 86. To summarize the life and career of the great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, formerly known as Ferdinand Louis Alcindor Jr., and a writer, activist, actor, six-time NBA champion, six-time league MVP, 19-time All-Star, Hall of Famer, and the all-time leading point scorer in NBA history, would take an extraordinarily long time. When I was in elementary school, I did a book report on Kareem, and he's done about a million things since then in his incredible life. So instead, let's focus on a key part of Kareem's mystique those giant goggles he wore during games, starting in the 1974 season. At 7'2", the center's eyes were often in close contact with opponents' hands and prone to getting poked. During one preseason game while he was playing with Milwaukee, his left eye became severely scratched by another player, and Kareem was so pissed off that he punched the basket's post and broke his hand. So while his hand was recovering, he and his doctors decided he should go back on the court with protective eyewear. Early pair didn't allow him any peripheral vision, but a second, larger pair, made of shatterproof plexiglass, were just right. He would wear them for the rest of his career, which spanned 20 years in total and ended in 1989. Even with the goggles, his eyes took a beating, and he had developed a condition called corneal erosion syndrome. He once missed a game because his eyes swelled up due to intense drying out. But they sure didn't stop him from racking up a still record 38,387 points and paving the way for bespectacled athletes everywhere. Magic and Kareem, and James Worthy, and Kurt Rambis, and Byron Scott, and the rest of the Lakers, dominated 80s basketball and went to eight NBA Finals, winning five titles. 
Their most frequent opponents during that time were their cross-country rivals, the Boston Celtics, who also came up on one of the Golden Girls' greatest episodes. In season one's A Little Romance, written by Barry Finaro and Mort Nathan, Rose begins dating a new man. He's a doctor and very erudite and kind and about four feet tall. This reveal sends Blanche and Dorothy into a tailspin. Offering him shrimp and short ribs don't help. But Dr. Jonathan Newman is comfortable with who he is, and he won't let his size get in the way of living his best life. Don't be self-conscious about my height. I'm not. Really? Really. Look, everybody has something about themselves they'd like to change. The trick is getting beyond it. Don't get me wrong. I'd love to know what it feels like to be the center on the Boston Celtics. But all in all, I'm pretty happy with who I am. Oh, God, he gives me goosebumps when he talks like that. (laughs) Sadly, Jonathan breaks up with Rose because she's not Jewish. And he never got to play for the Celtics either. A Little Romance was the first episode directed by Terry Hughes, who would go on to be an integral part of the show for the next five seasons. It's also one of the Golden Girls' inarguable classics and a favorite of Betty White's and writer Barry Finero, who said Rose and Jonathan's relationship was an example for couples of all stripes. Quote, It's funny, but to me it's also serious. It's about discrimination, and it touches on racism and sexuality. To me, Rose's dilemma is parallel to concerns about dating outside one's race or religion. So yes, we did as many jokes as possible. But underneath it all, this episode was always about making the decision and commitment to be in love with someone unlike yourself. And it was perfect Rose that she would be able to do that. End quote. In 1986, Finaro and Nathan won an Emmy for Outstanding Writing in a Comedy Series for the episode. Jonathan was played by actor Brent Collins, whose most famous roles, outside of the Golden Girls, were on soap operas. On As the World Turns, he played the role of Mr. Big, a drug-smuggling, art-stealing kidnapper who met his end by being eaten by a crocodile. Collins also spent four years on Another World as the much friendlier character of Wallingford. Collins' height was the result of dwarfism, but he later suffered from a condition known as Marfan syndrome, which typically causes people to grow to larger than normal sizes. In 1987, at 45 years old, Collins went through a rapid growth spurt due to the Marfans, which led to a fatal heart attack in January of 1988. One last bit. In High Anxiety, a season four episode written by Martin Weiss and Robert Bruce that aired in 1989, we were shocked by the most unlikely drug addiction story of our time. Rose has been taking pills for a back injury that happened 30 years prior, and it's clear that she's addicted to them. But at least the girls are here to help her. I can't stop tonight because I'm afraid. I don't know if I can. That's because you're hooked on these, Rose. But honey, there's a place for people with this kind of problem. Please, what is she going to do in the NBA? In a unique show of economy, the script for High Anxiety was recycled from an episode of an entirely other series, according to writer Robert Bruce. And that show had a near-weird Golden Girls connection itself. Quote, Marty and I had written this same addiction story for the Ellen Burstyn show in 1986. The show was so short-lived on ABC, I don't think anyone ever saw the episode. I don't even remember if it aired. In fact, the funny thing was the character we wrote the storyline for was Ellen's mother, played by Elaine Stritch. And after the table read, she came up to us and said, quote, you've got me sounding like one of the goddamn Golden Girls here, end quote. 
Yep, that's the same Elaine Stritch that had a fateful audition for Dorothy back when the show was still in its embryonic stages. We talked about it in our B. Arthur episode, and Stritch understood that ultimately, the right actress got the job. The Ellen Burstyn show only lasted for 13 episodes in 1986, and co-starred Megan Mullally as Burstyn's single mom daughter. I don't know if that drug episode ever made it to air, but it's safe to say that if it did, it wasn't as memorable as the Golden Girl staying up all night and magically curing Rose of her pill addiction, something Bruce himself says was, quote, very unrealistic. The NBA, on the other hand, did have a very real drug problem in the 1980s. A story from the LA Times in 1980 said that people within the league estimated that 40 to 75% of players had used cocaine. The NBA formed a committee that year to investigate use among players and formulate rehabilitation programs. Whole books have been written about cocaine's effect on a few teams, like the New York Knicks, who may have shaved points under orders from their dealer, and those same Showtime Lakers, who lived the Hollywood lifestyle to its fullest. The list of players who were banned for cocaine use throughout the decade is a long one, and a few of the names included are John Drew, Michael Ray Richardson, Lewis Lloyd, Mitchell Wiggins, and Chris Washburn. Sadly, some of the stories ended tragically, most notably that of Len Bias, the second overall pick in the 1986 draft. Expected to carry on the Celtics' winning tradition as Larry Bird and Kevin McHale got older, Bias died just two days after the draft. He was celebrating his selection in a University of Maryland dorm room and using cocaine when he collapsed. He died a few hours later in a hospital, and his passing at the age of just 22 shocked the sports world. When I was growing up, the Knicks were a huge deal and won a ton of games while playing a brutal, punishing brand of physical basketball that no one had ever seen before. It's always been crazy to me that the coach who instilled that style in them was Pat Riley, the guy who also oversaw the flashy, fun Lakers of Magic and Kareem. I don't have as much time to dedicate to it anymore, so I just check in on the playoffs and finals every year to see what LeBron James is up to. This episode covers a lot of my favorite Golden Girls episodes, ones I've seen a dozen times and never get tired of. My Brother, My Father, A Little Romance, and especially A Visit from Little Sven are ones I can quote nonstop. There's a pause in A Little Romance at the time Sophia first sees Jonathan. We expect her to say something outlandish and offensive, but instead she just excuses herself for a nap and makes a joke about herself to Darth. That's excellent writing, showing not only restraint and timing, but an incredible knowledge of the character and the audience's expectations of her. The basketball jokes are just a random aspect that they all have in common, but as with a lot of sports references we examined, they're examples of how the Golden Girls were able to stay topical and grounded. I mean, of course they all know who Magic Johnson is. Who doesn't? He's Magic! Next time on Golden Girls Sports, it's all about the venues, when some of the most famous arenas in sports come up as punchlines. Golden Girls Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saracini. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version, by Josh Woodward, and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit goldengirlsportspodcast.com for show notes and references, and follow us on Twitter at Golden Girls SP. Thanks for listening.